the $1,000 a day walk-around money. An immense amount today, but this was in 1881. Sarah was born and raised in New Haven, Connecticut. It was known as the Belle of New Haven. Because of her wealth and connections and power, she was approached by colleges, politicians, organizations for donations, for endorsements, rich and well-known and powerful and miserable. Sarah's only daughter had died just five weeks after childbirth, and she fell into a deep, deep depression. For years, carried that depression. And then when her husband died in 1884, she inherited this incredible wealth. But she was burdened down with this depression and this guilt that she felt. And so seeking freedom from her past and guilt, she fled to the West. As far as she could get from New Haven, Connecticut, made her way West and uh, settled in California. Had been a state only for 34 years at that time. She settled in San Jose, California, which had been the original capital of our state, and bought uh, some property there, a little eight-room farmhouse and adjoining 160 acres. And then she hired a group of carpenters to work around the clock in eight-hour shifts. They would work. She called this mansion of hers the Yanada Villa. And for 38 years, 24 hours a day, they built onto her house. Her superstitions went beyond eccentric. She was driven by her nightmares. She dreamt of all kinds of mythical creatures, goblins and elves, and was just struggling with this drive to continue to, uh, to see something happening around her. Uh, her instructions went beyond eccentric. Each window had to have 13 panes, <clears throat> each wall 13 panels, each closet 13 hooks, each uh, staircase 13 steps, each chandelier 13 light bulbs. Corridors snaked randomly through the property. One door opened to a blank wall and one to a 50-foot drop. <laughs> a stairway led to the ceiling. Trapdoors, secret passageways, tunnels. The work only stopped at Sarah's death in 1922 at age 83. The house at that point covered six acres, had six kitchens, 18 bathrooms, 40 stairways, 47 fireplaces, 467 doors, 10,000 windows, <clears throat> 160 rooms, and a bell tower. And while she lived there for those 38 years, a servant would ring the bell in the bell tower from midnight to 2 a.m., during which time she thought she communed with the spirits of those for whom she felt responsible for their death. Thousands of Native Americans and soldiers killed on the U.S. frontier by the most popular weapon of the day, the Winchester repeating rifle. What brought Sarah Winchester millions brought death to them. Burdened by this guilt, she created what's now called the Winchester Mystery House. If you go to San Jose, you can still see it. A year after she died, they opened the doors to tourists. So now for 100 years, people have gone to see this monument to unresolved guilt. Thinking of that guilt, 
I want us to, to dwell on the scripture we just heard read of Moses saying that, yes, the people are guilty, but if you do not go with us, what will set us apart? What will distinguish us if we do not find our identity in you? I want you to hear the words also from 2 Corinthians. This is a portion of Paul's writing to the Corinthian church between his, his visit there, which was 18 months. Now, Paul, who measured his visits in days and weeks, 18 months in Corinth, was called the most wicked city of the Roman Empire. His uh, associates begged him not even to try to evangelize there, but, but partnering with Aquila and Priscilla, he ministered there and shared with them and then felt burdened to write a letter. And he sends Titus back to Corinth with this letter and here's what it says from verse 8 in chapter 7. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy because you were made sorry, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Let's pray as we come to this portion of the word. Father, your word speaks to our hearts. And as Paul sent this letter to the Corinthians, those within the church, it speaks to those of us within the church. If we've lost sight of what our sorrow means, what our guilt means, if it doesn't bring us to repentance, teach us from this portion today as we study your word together. In the name of Christ, amen. Godly sorrow that reacts to separation from God, recognizing how horrible it is to sense this emptiness that our guilt has brought with God. Worldly sorrow only responds to being caught, <laughs> the consequences of the guilt and the wrong that we have done. Godly sorrow, he says, leads to repentance. Worldly sorrow will lead to death. Now, Scripture is clear. The, the guilt is real. In Romans 3.23, all have sinned and continue to fall short of the glory of God. And three chapters later, Paul says, the wages of sin is death. We can put those together. We've got some basic logic here. <laughs> if all have sinned and the wages of sin is death, all deserve death. But thank the Lord, uh, 6.23 goes on. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. There's where we rejoice. There's where we find the heart of what Paul was trying to get through to the people in Corinth. Real repentance means a turning around. It's really what the word means. Turn around, go the other direction. It's a radical change of attitude. It involves acknowledging sin and grieving over sin and truly be willing to change. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. True confession is what John is trying to get us to zero in on. It's what Paul is trying to get the Corinthian church to zero in on at this point. Sin must be recognized 
and we must come to hate that sin and finally to disavow that sin and turn in the opposite direction. So recognizing sin is not repentance. Feeling sorry about our sin is not repentance. (laughs) Repentance only comes when we truly confess with intent to change and then to allow God to change us. Now, there's a long list of scriptural examples, and I went through several of them in my head, of those who are guilty without repentance. Just pick a few from the Old Testament, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, a long list of, of Israel's kings, much more who disobeyed God than who finally obeyed God. Achan, the general in Joshua's army, who thought he could just lie to the Lord and cover it up and build up his own wealth. Ahab and Jezebel, what a couple. <laughs> Another couple in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, just as the church is building momentum in Jerusalem and, and the church is beginning to grow and they think they can lie to God and it causes them their lives. A long line of uh, pharisaical legalists, uh, idol worshipers, the Herods. What a couple of Herods. and Herod the Great and Herod Agrippa and Agrippa the Second. They just get dumber and dumber as they go along. (laughs) Judas, who betrayed the Lord. Jezebel was thrown down by her own servants, trampled by horses, and eaten by dogs. Herod Agrippa I claimed to be God and was cast down and eaten by worms. Judas betrayed the Lord, and Jesus himself said it would have been better for him had he not been born. There's a long litany of those in scripture who have been guilty and that guilt led to death. But rather than focusing on those, I want us to look at the difference when we have this godly sorrow that Paul speaks of, which leads to repentance. Let's take Jacob from the Old Testament. Read the story in Genesis 32, surrounding chapters as well. But Jacob, conspiring with his mother all the way through the process, deceives his father, cheats his brother out of his birthright, then cheats his brother out of the blessing of the oldest son. And so he suffers exile and separation for years. Now later, Jacob wants to come back and be reconciled with Esau, so he sends all these elaborate gifts ahead to kind of pave the way so he can have a right relationship again with his brother who is wronged in such a way. But the night before, this interaction with his brother we read of this wrestling match with God. And Jacob calls the place Peniel and says, for there I saw the face of God and lived. And wrestled with God and said, I will not release you until you bless me. And God blesses him. And he becomes Israel. He renames him. Becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Guilty, absolutely. But grace steps in and transforms David, (laughs) man after God's own heart, right? But what sin? His lust, his adultery leads to committing a murder, probably the most dysfunctional family that we read of in Scripture. David was king. He could have flaunted God and could have stood and said, I am king, I can do what I please. But instead, in Psalm 38, he says, my guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. Let me read you from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, 
According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, my sins are always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And down in verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. In Psalm 32, he says it this way. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. An amazing response. Guilty? Absolutely. But grace steps in. Come into the New Testament. Peter, the very night that he would deny Christ, had declared (laughs) to Jesus and to all in the room, if all of these others turn away, (laughs) I will not. I will go to death with you if I need to. Peter, in essence, saying to his brother and all the other disciples, if these weaklings fall away, I'll be strong. And that very night, as Jesus had predicted, denied even knowing him, cursed his name. And yet grace. (laughs) That beautiful scene in John 21 where Jesus reinstates him and asks him if he really loves him and sets him on his task. You've been guilty of every kind of sin, Peter, but my grace is sufficient for you. Paul, who had persecuted the church and writes this warning to the Colossian church about this godly sorrow that leads to repentance, had persecuted the church, and yet when Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus, turned around, became the apostle to the Gentiles that God meant for him to be. Guilty, but grace. The Samaritan woman, let's come full circle from talking Jacob in the Old Testament. They're at Jacob's well now. And the Samaritan woman is coming at an odd hour of the day, not when all the women came because she wanted to be there alone, and encounters Jesus. And he speaks of living water and everlasting life and tells her about the five husbands that she's had and the man she's currently living with and everything that's happened in her life. And she receives the living water and then goes and tells the entire village. Everyone hears that Jesus has spoken to her immensely guilty, and yet grace. Mary Magdalene. Jesus cast seven demons from Mary Magdalene, seven signifying total evil, completely changed by Jesus, followed him, washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. Mary, the last one at the cross, the first one at the tomb. Who did Jesus first appear to in the resurrection form? Mary. Thought he was the gardener until he spoke her name. You've been guilty, 
but grace stepped in. We've all been there, haven't we? Grace has stepped in to our lives. Our family had a, a marvelous day yesterday. We had a, a reunion of about 18 cousins at the house and uh, a situation that kind of was hanging over our cousin gathering is that one of our cousins locally uh, is fighting a, just a dreadful cancer. And at one point in our discussions there on the, the patio, Robert got a chance to just witness to the whole gathering of cousins of the grace of God in his life as he's battling this horrible, horrible disease. And said, I, I've been bold enough to take the promise that Paul had when he asked Jesus three times for healing and yet this thorn in the flesh remains. And what was the word to Paul? My grace is sufficient for you. And Robert has taken that as his verse. God's grace is sufficient for him. He says, if he heals me, glory to God. If he doesn't heal me, I'm good with him. And his grace is sufficient for me. I have asked for healing. I trust for healing. And yet, his grace is sufficient. Is our guilt real? Absolutely. But guilt can be deceiving. There is healthy guilt, godly sorrow that Paul speaks of, that leads to repentance and forgiveness, grace-filled life that comes with that acceptance. But there's this neurotic guilt of the worldly sorrow that leads only to resentment and punishment, either from the person themselves. What have I done to deserve this? And they take it upon themselves, or others might punish them. But they reject the grace of God, and it leads to death. But what about our conscience, you know? I grew up with Jiminy Cricket. Isn't your conscience supposed to be your guide? <laughs> the conscience has to be informed by the word, where the conscience is pliable. We read stories of those who have just seared their conscience to where it's completely inactive. Sociopaths that can pass a lie detector test with flying colors. No conscience remains. So what will guide us in this? Criticism from others or self can lead to guilt. Social norms can lead to guilt. Go back to the norms of Job's day, Job's friends, <laughs> who told him, you must have done something wrong. God wouldn't treat you this way if you hadn't done something wrong. The social norm of that day was the same social norm in John chapter 9. When Jesus' disciples see the man born blind and say, which one sinned, this man or his parents? The assumption was, this man would not be suffering so if sin hadn't caused it. And Jesus said, neither. This is so that God would receive glory. Guilt surrounds us. Infer inferiority can be experienced as guilt. Good works can be experienced as guilt. Am I doing the right things? Am I doing enough? Am I fulfilling my purpose in this. If I'm doing something good, should I be doing something else? Sins of omission, let's spend some time there. It gets us, doesn't it? It's not the evil we've done, but the good we've failed to do. And we can really disappoint ourselves. <laughs> but there's good news in 1 John on that one. This 
This is in chapter 3 of 1 John. This is then how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. We get down on ourselves and God says grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God so nobody can boast about it, Paul says. It's his free gift to us, the grace that he freely gives. So what comes to us then? This false or neurotic guilt can lose sight of real guilt. The ideal is that my actual feeling of guilt would be on the same level as my understanding of guilt. So it can get out of balance. High actual guilt and low feeling of guilt. It took us six chapters in Genesis to get from creation to where this is the statement. Every inclination of the thought of man's heart was only evil all the time. So God sent the flood. The New Testament version of that is in Romans chapter 1. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, God-slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but approve of those who practice them. The guilt is real. And if I have a high actual guilt and a low feeling of guilt, I won't ask for repentance. I won't ask for forgiveness. I won't ask for his grace. If I have a low actual guilt and a high feeling of guilt, that's when I have the presence to say, God knows my heart. God's greater than my heart. He knows that I'm his child. And we find that peace. Well, guilt throughout Scripture is real. Throughout Leviticus, there are the guilt offerings. Jeremiah says, stain of guilt is still before me. In Hebrews, draw near to God and cleanse us of a guilty conscience. And James says this, Whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of this. What James' understanding is that sin and the guilt of sin is separation from God. And only forgiveness bridges that gap and brings us back into the presence. That's the grace that he offers freely to us when we have separated ourselves from him. When we come to God for forgiveness, this is... Reuben said this, and Dee quoted it not long ago from this pulpit. When we come to God for forgiveness, that is not the time when God decides whether or not he will forgive us. <laughs> Slain from the foundation of the world, God has decided he will forgive us when we repent, when we confess, when we turn to him. Forgiveness is a given. In Revelation, he says, I stand at the door and knock. <laughs> if you will open the door, I will come in. It's his promise to us. Let me go back to the Psalms for David's response. In Psalm 139, Search me, O God, 
and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, O oh God. It's a prayer that I love to just cycle into my prayers all the time. Know me. Know my anxious thoughts. Know my godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Help me to keep that sorrow in check with reality. Create in me a pure heart. Billy Graham was famous for saying, for change to be lasting, there must be a moment of decision. A time when I say, forgive me. And I love the thought that the mark of my maturity as a Christian is the amount of time it takes to bring a revealed sin to the cross. Not going back to square one and starting over as a believer, but God reveals a sin, I bring it to him. The more immediately, the better. Guilt, absolutely, but grace. God gives grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Father, help us to realize in a moment of decision, if we belong to you and we've just strayed and done something we know is just horrible, grace. If we've never come to a decision to follow you, erase the guilt of our sin by your grace. But Father, help us to walk in that grace this day, the days of this week. As you grant us life, may we be yours. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you.